Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Penis mouse? What do you mean? Like, is that a metaphor? <laughs> Why do you. Why don't you have a mouse? <laughs> Would you take Irene's mouse back to him? <laughs> I think that's like a metaphor for something. Yeah. No, that, that really is a mouse. Yeah, take, take, it, take it back to Ira. I said, Randy sent your mouse home. That is the weirdest thing I've ever heard. That is funny. Oh. That's funny. I don't think it's as funny, though, as you guys doing the pro wrestling thing. That is, <laughs> that is the most ridiculous thing. I went when they were, when the WWE, I think it was E back then, when WWE came to Abilene, I went with Coach S, strength training coach, remember him? Uh, I don't know. If you, I don't know why either of you would know who that is. He was the strength training coach right here. Yeah, nice. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's like eight of us, and we went and watched at the Civic Center, and it was, it was special. Why did Why did you guys go to pro wrestling? Well, we never done it before. At least right. I'd never done it before. We wanted to see what it was like, and we appeared to be the only ones there who didn't <laughs> understand what was right. going on. There's this, like, call and response going on. I mean, we're like, we're like a couple of fundamentalists at a Greek Orthodox service. We don't, know, we don't know when to stand up and when to sit down and what to chant and who the oh, good guys man. are and who the bad guys are. Yeah. It was highly entertaining, I thought. Oh, yeah, it, it was hilarious, though. Just, uh, and, man, they got into it. Yeah, and the singing and I don't know. Yeah, that's the deal. That you know, at some level, everybody there knows it's fake. I think, don't yeah. you? Yeah, <laughs> but so. they're still fully invested mm-hmm. in the story that's being that's being told. It's really actually pretty interesting. I was yeah. going to New Orleans a couple of years ago, <laughs> and I was at the terminal in at DFW. And there's all these like WWE shirts that everyone was wearing. I was like, what is the deal? And this one guy is next to me. I'm like, Why, what is the deal with all the wrestling stuff? And he goes, oh, it's SummerSlam in New Orleans this weekend. And so like, there's this, there's this room of, um, I don't want to stereotype wrestling fans, but I feel like everyone knows what that stereotype is. And so just insert that <laughs> description. And then there's like a hush on the crowd. And I look over and there's this monster of a man who walks over there like poorly hidden behind a pair of sunglasses and hat. And I was like, that's Bill Goldberg. I know who that is. And they're all just like, <laughs> and they're all like, who's going to go first? And it was, they, one eventually went over and talked to him, and it was like the floodgates of nerddom just opened up, and they all just heard. It was, it was amazing. Would you, would you guys do that at the airport now if you saw a pro wrestler? I, I probably would have a hard time recognizing. Uh, I didn't recognize any of the, no, the no, wrestlers there that night, no. but... I wouldn't, but I think I've seen a lot of celebrities on planes through my life, but I didn't know who any of them were. So you didn't. Mm-mm. No, that's a shame. I've seen I've seen a few athletic guys that I knew, but I didn't approach him. I like who? Do you know any names? Uh, yeah, um, who's the great uh, great uh, UCLA player that does NBA commentary now? Reggie, Reggie Miller. Reggie Miller. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, he's so like across, six nine, isn't he? Mm-hmm. He sat across from me on a plane one time. Wow. Uh, Dick Enberg, famous sportscaster, mm-hmm. uh, sat across from me one time. Uh, Charlie Pride, mm-hmm. country oh, Char- singer, was on a plane I was on. Now, all this is very <laughs> telling of the seats that you sit in because because uh, <laughs> people like that don't sit in like thirty D. You know, they yeah. they sit up front, yeah. which which is where you sit, I guess. I, I get upgraded from time, <laughs> from time to time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. 
Uh. I saw Pete Rose at the baggage mm. claim in uh, Nashville a couple years ago. And so I text my brother, who's a terrible influence, and I said, Pete Rose is literally sitting right next to me. And he goes, uh, ask him what he thinks about the spread for the Cowboys game this weekend. <laughs> oh, Tell me you didn't do that. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm much, much nicer than that. Um, okay, so I, I saw... Oral Roberts' son was on a plane I was on. I never felt safer. No, because... Mm. You know, I, if, if I figured if the plane was in trouble, he would heal it. Exactly. <laughs> but what if God told him to raise like $8 million and it didn't happen, then God might have to strike him dead. Because that's also <laughs> yeah. true. So I saw a video that you guys did for the Cybert Institute. And it, I didn't really know what the video was at first because I didn't read the description. And my first thought was Stephen Moore, ACU English celebrity, uh, department celebrity, uh, Randy Harris, obviously Bible faculty, celebrity. My first thought was, oh, this is a video about like the two most eligible bachelors at ACU. <laughs> Did anyone else think I, that? Do you know? Um, the emails haven't been pouring into me, okay. you know, requesting that that first date. Maybe Steven's gotten them all. I don't yeah. know. No, that sounds like a good video to do, though. You're welcome. We could. <laughs> I could be your... We should uh, do that. Sounds horrifying. Who's, that, who's the, uh, the Chris, Chris, whatever, the host for The Bachelor? I could be that for you too, and I could yeah, just I don't watch that show. Yeah, yes, it, we don't we don't watch that show. <laughs> That's a shock. I think if you did watch, you're like, I'm going to send him my tape. This would be me. See Stephen Moore up there. We do. We're, we're we're too cultured to watch that show. We go to right. wrestling matches. Yeah, exactly. definitely. Randy, can you imagine Stephen Moore leading a group of thirty uh, young single women in highways and byways <laughs> as like this is our group date. Highways, byways, <laughs> teaching the hand motions to him. Oh, you're terrible. Uh, I, think you, I think you'd be great at that. Uh, All right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the video was, um, it was about your, your dissertation, which you were writing, I guess, the, the thing, the theme of it was like Black Rage, which is oh, that's right. your dissertation's subject matter. Right. Which, when I was at you school. You remember that. Yeah. Because right. I remember you were, you were working on it, and right. I remember specifically there was one chapter on... Uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say the word mulatto. Uh, am I allowed to say that word? Someone told me I'm not. Uh, right, biracial. But isn't you, right, have, but you the, had a chapter entitled? Uh, that's ab- right. About that. About, right. It was a term that they used at the time, and so a- am I. Gonna, I decided, am I going to need to edit that out? Is uh, that bad? <laughs> I, I don't know, but it's it's biracial. <laughs> but but no, that that was a term that they used mm-hmm. uh, back then, and so that's interesting. You remember the chapter title? Well, I care about my you. dissertation. I, I care about you. That's why I don't even remember. You don't? I, I don't remember that the whole title oh. of that chapter. Well, I guess we know who cares most about <laughs> social justice and working for equality. You don't even remember the chapter title. But so I saw. It, I was like, oh, of course, Stephen. That's uh, yeah. that's your dissertation. So, I, and I had uh, I. I feel almost like I'm going to lose any credibility of being a well-read person by saying this, but I finally read Coates's uh, Between Me and the World, oh, or nice. actually I listened to it uh, like a week ago. Okay. And so I feel like if I say that, people are like, he's clearly not woke. He's not woke. If, he, if it took him that long to finally read. And so I, uh, I saw your video and I listened and I thought, well, let's, I, I've got plenty of questions. I want to decompress some of the stuff that, that, I, re- that I experienced reading that, which obviously yeah. you've, you've read it, oh, yeah. Stephen. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, like multiple times? No, well, that's several times, yes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he's, I think he's, teach, he's teaching it. Right. In, in, in my multicultural class. literature class, mm-hmm. uh, that's one of the books that, really? that I use. Yes. Why did you pick that as one of your books? Well, I thought it was a very timely topic, and critics went on and on 
about his book, and Toni Morrison said that this is required reading. And so I thought, why not? And um, I was afraid in terms of how students would respond to it, but I was just amazed in terms of how many of them were clueless about the subject and about the topic. But uh, I just love that book. It's a powerful book. And I think he's just showing us how this relates to us today. Mm-hmm. Why do you so, think that book has captured the collective attention as much as it has? Right. I think because of what's going on right now. I think when you open up the newspaper, when you turn on the TV, when you see what's going on in the news, and there's all this unrest that's going on in America, especially with the, with the unarmed black man and, and the clashing that they're having with white cops, and it's just blowing all out of control. I think that's why he, that book is uh, popular right now. How long has the book been out? Uh, I want to say a year. Does that sound right? And it seems like it's so. just all, all over the place. I mean, right. It's, it's right. garnered so much attention. Uh, yeah. Randy, I guess you've, you know, if it's only been out a year, I mean, that's probably as long as you've known about it. Um, why, why did you feel this book has had um, such an ability to connect to so many people? Uh, well, uh, for one, for one thing, it's an extraordinarily well-written book. Okay. You actually mm-hmm. listened to it, yeah. which is what I did as well. Yeah. Yeah. He's a gifted, he's just a gifted writer. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, I think, I think it got some attention, uh, because, of kind of the f- creating this great format of here, here's some things I have to say to my son. I think there was something about that that yeah, yeah. connected, and I think just the the gloominess of the book. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not much about okay, son, the world's going to be a better world for you. It's more about okay, how do you survive in a in a world where black bodies continue to be expendable and i think i think a lot of us who want to say okay we're getting it's slow but but we're getting there i think it was just kind of this abrupt well that depends on which end of that you're on yeah you know mm-hmm. if, if you're on the end of it that's still having to deal with it every day it's like you know it's like having a knife in your back and somebody pulling it halfway out and say is that better yeah it, 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 you know uh and so i think i think there was that kind of immediate i, I think uh, for me, and Stephen's read much more in this area, the two great nonfiction accounts of, of, of black experience that I've read that, re- that really moved me. Once an academic work, uh, Race Matters by Cornell West, which I think is just, again, an eloquent uh, kind, of, kind of plea. And then, and then this book, which is much more visceral, and I'm sure there's hundreds of others, mm-hmm. but, but th- those two are the two that really connected with me on the nonfiction yeah. Uh, side, obviously, there's lots of fiction for sure. So, mm. when I when I was listening to it, at one point, I just stopped, and I think I I might have even cried, and I hate to embarrass myself and actually explain that I have emotions because I try not to have those very often. But in in listening to that that story, I just felt that sense of uh, hopelessness, and and I was just trying to imagine what that sort of hopelessness would feel like, especially as a father going, I, the world's pretty bad and it's not going to get any better and this is just y- your uh, your reality. I, Randy, I know that you like to waller and lament and so of course that book in a lot of ways is a lament. Uh, Stephen, you seem like a much more you know healthy, <clears throat> excuse me, optimistic person. 
does the the pessimism that, that I gather is that was that your take on his writing too? And if so, like how did how did you respond to that? I I, I don't know. So I there's just something about that book. It just uh, struck a chord in me, and um, not just me, but uh, my family and and some friends who have gone through what he has. And I think when people come up to me uh, because I've been writing about black rage and publishing in that area, people come up to me and go, "Well, you seem so happy." all the time. There's not a, um, an ounce of, of rage inside of you. And I, and I tell them, see, you, you just really don't know. Because I think you can smile, you can try to appear to have this joy, and then be suffering with this rage within. And the reason why I love the book so much is because he's honestly depicting what's going on in America. I think he is a realist. Um, but Randy's right. Like that writing style is just so beautiful. It's uh, it's poetry mm-hmm. to me. But the way that he paints this picture in terms of, son, here are some of the things that you're going to have to go through in life because you have a black body. It just it gets me on the inside. He um, he references the uh, the quote that uh, Dr. King has made famous: the the moral arc of the universe is long and it bends towards justice. And he flips and goes, it doesn't bend towards justice to me. And he comes from uh, a non-theist perspective, and he doesn't see any sort of redemption and hope out there. Do you have, I mean, obviously you're a person of deep faith, and so right. would you make a different move there? Do you have that same sort of pessimism, or do you see? Right. Um, I, I think uh, probably different in that regard, and that, that's something that we talked about in the video, because, you know, the video is not all about black rage and negativity, but what I love about the video that um, Randy and I did, like near the end, I think there is hope. I think there is some optimism, especially when we think about uh, the teachings of Christ and what we should be doing in this world to help people who are being disenfranchised and oppressed. But uh, I, th- there was a, that question really stumped me when he said, well, you know, do you have hope? Are you optimistic about the future? And I think I go back and forth. But I think at the end of the day, uh, there is hope. And that's why I talk quite a bit about my parents and their example and the way that they taught Christ to me and uh, that way of forgiving, that radical way of forgiving, um, really um, is something that I think about all the time. Do you, do you see yourself as uh, a, a professor at a university your dad wasn't able to get into simply uh, for the color of his skin as a way of saying, okay, there is progress, there is hope? Right. Because as... Uh, as a white person on the outside, um, I would go, well, yeah, clearly there's progress. I mean, you are living tangible proof that, yes, one generation to the next, there's progress. Uh, Help me see why someone like Coates wouldn't see that and go, well, yeah, there's there's no reason to be hopeful or optimistic. Right, right. Well, uh, that's where I do have hope. I I think, um, and maybe that's why my parents never never told me about it when I applied uh, to ACU. I think maybe that's why they kept that story a secret until later on. But um, I, I don't know. Um, because I, at first people have asked me, if you had known that story while applying to ACU, if you had known about what happened to your dad, would you still? And I, I, I don't know. I, I think at that at that time, I probably would not have completed the application process. I think I would have had really? that anger probably would have swelled up 
yeah. in me. And that, hey, I, screw you. You guys screwed over my family. And I'm, I don't know if you could say that since you're a professor <laughs> here. I'm just a preacher. I can say that. But I would have, like, I would have that. I would, right. You know, forget you. You you disrespected my family. I'm not going to try to participate and make yours better. Right. I, I, I completely get that. Okay, so he kept on referring to black bodies, black bodies. And I don't have a doctorate in English, so I don't understand the literary device of referring to black bodies. Can you explain right. that to, right. to me? I, I think um, Coates is just trying to get people to zero in on the fact that notice what this culture has done to the black body. Like, let's go back into history and let's just march along all the way up to uh, today, 2016, and let's just notice how that black body has been treated. And that when we think about the history of America, you have to think about the black body. When you think about how we have built this country, how this nation was built, it was built upon black bodies. And um, even when uh, it was interesting when President Obama got up and he says, I cannot believe I'm president of the United States and I'm living in a house where black slaves, they built this house. Yeah. So I think it just goes back to what um, Coates is saying mm-hmm. about um, the way that we've treated black bodies throughout throughout time. And then he refers to the people who imagine themselves to be white, hmm. which again, I was like, well, there's something going on here that I don't understand. So Dr. Right. Moore, would you <laughs> please educate me? Right, right. Now, I'm trying to remember that, that section. You're talking about where he says... I felt like it was... Uh, Maybe I'm remembering incorrectly, but I felt like he continued to say, just referring to white people as those who imagine themselves to be white. Right. Did, did you hear that in the book? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. So I don't know if there's a particular section. It's almost like he assumed this is an adequate way to describe a group of people as those who imagine themselves to be white. Right. I think there was something uh, I wrote down here about um, uh, uh, to think that they are white means that they are beyond the design flaw of humanity. mm and so I'm, I, I wish I could unpack more about what he was trying to say. Right, right. I think he's just going with what other scholars and critics have been writing about, and even other, like James Baldwin, mm-hmm. and uh, even some of the writers that, that we've studied, such as Richard Wright and Nella Larson and Alice Walker. I think it goes back to um, what Tim Wise said in a book, White Like Me, and he's trying, here's a white intellectual talking about the problem of race in America. But uh, I love when he tries to unpack white privilege and how he tries to show that there are a lot of white people who wake up in the world and they don't even think about their whiteness. So they don't even ask the question, oh, I can't believe, am I, what color am I? I can't believe I'm white. They don't have to ask that question. Whereas people of color, sometimes that's the question that they're constantly asking each and every day when they look into the mirror. And so white privilege means you don't even have to worry about asking that question and um you and you're born into a world with certain advantages and privileges mm-hmm. and so i don't know it's hard to grapple especially from individuals who are white and who say i'm not racist i don't hate black people i don't hate people of color i'm the kindest person you ever want to know but i think they i think people need to step back and really ask how is this world structured uh, how is it ordered in a way that it privileges people who are white? And I think once we're able to embrace that reality, I think we can honestly try to unpack the problem and then to do something about it. Yeah. Randy, would you say that's your experience, you know, growing up in Arkansas, 
as someone you never th- Arkansas, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, how do I forget that? Um, like you, you never questioned what your ethnicity was and all that. Right. Yeah. And there, there was almost no um, uh, over over against to define yourself. I, I didn't have an African American friend growing up. There were none around. I didn't have a Jewish yeah. friend. I didn't have a Middle Eastern friend. I didn't have a Hispanic friend. That's how truncated my world is. So, you know, racial identity is not anything you think about because everybody's everyone's white. Everybody's just alike. But, but I think, you know, I was trying to think as, as Stephen is talking, white, the definition of white is become, has been a moving target. So people that would be considered or would imagine themselves white today would have been on the outside of that in certain immigrant communities coming in in early American. Hmm. So, uh, okay, if you're an Italian, are you, are, you white? are you white in the early American immigrant experience? Hmm. And if you're from the Middle East now, are you, are you white? And, you know, there's this kind of freedom to, okay, we'll define who's, Who's this and who's not, and who? What's the group of people that this is describing? Yeah. Uh, hmm. And so he references the the one drop policy, which you know, if if you're white, well, yeah, you're you're Italian. We can count you as white. But if there's one drop, it's why Obama is, you know, a black president instead of being half white, half black. It's you know, the yeah. one, he's he's a black, black president. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, when when uh, Coates was telling the story about Prince Jones' mother, and so Prince Jones is uh, uh, a fellow Howard, Howard, is that right? Uh, that's right. Howard grad um, that was uh, killed by a police officer, and uh, Coates ends up talking with his mother afterwards, and she's a very accomplished doctor, and she references the Solomon Northup story, uh, 12 years a slave gentleman who's born a free man up north, or was a free man up north, tricked to go to the south, and all of a sudden he's a slave for 12 years. And she referenced that in, in that one moment she had a Northup-like experience where she went from being a highly respected, uh, professional, uh, well-looked-upon in the community, and in that one moment she's gone into her own slave experience. So you tell, I, I've heard you tell a story before about you're driving your uh, Dodge Avenger. That's right. Which you, you described as a sports car. My dad would go, that's not, that's not really a sports car. Um, which I've ridden that car before. And you were talking about driving with your, uh, your roommate at the time. Oh, that's right. And the police pulls you over and says, you're not, you're, you're not a professor. Yes, I am. And, you're, and the, the white guy in the, the front seat is just going ballistic. Unimaginable un- experience that he's going through seeing this. Uh, and it's almost like in that moment, you have that ability to just go all of a sudden the north of like experience of going from being highly respected professor to is that part of and so you you reference baldwin and say you know every uh, aware black person lives with black rage is that part of the underneath rage is like there's a moment where i could have that same thing to go right right i i think so and i that's why whenever i'm talking to my students about you know what's going on in the in the, the world today like people are quick to say well, I mean, there are so many successful black people that I know. I know successful black doctors, lawyers, professors, and the list goes on. And uh, it doesn't seem like they wrestle with rage or that they have a problem with what's going on uh, in the world today. But then I'm quick to point out, like, look, it, it happens to people who 
are successful in their fields and, and then notice they're black and they have to put up with, with racism at times. Like you can be a, a doctor, you can be president of the United States and still go through that. That's why I think um, when we had that racial um, incident that Harvard professor um, Henry Louis Gates Jr., um, when he was detained by the cops, I remember that President Obama weighed in on that whole debate. But I remember uh, some people being outraged. You thought that, man, being the president, you need to learn how to be objective. But I, I understood at the time why he chimed in, because, um, I mean, how could he ignore that? Yeah. And uh, here's somebody who is black or, or biracial, someone who was a very uh, successful lawyer. But um, he had all of these stories of being detained by the police, of being mistreated because of the color of skin. And he was very successful and tried to play by, play the game, tried to play by the rules. But... Um, I don't know. I, I think he struck a chord with a lot of black individuals who each and every day they're trying to do the right thing. But, you know, they have to face this wall of, of racism. Yeah. And it's amazing that they're able to to even breathe. So you say uh, I think it was in the video you talk about the importance of listening to stories. Right. And the multiple different people who I've had on the podcast talking about the specific issue all seem to go back to that same point of uh, white people hear the stories. Right. Hear the stories. Why do you... Okay, I'm going to go to Randy on this one. Randy, why do you think hearing the stories is such a powerful uh, agent of change? Um, well, I mean, we could, we could get sort of into the theoretical thing about the way stories well, work. You know, stories do things to us from the time we're a little child we're sort of taken in by by stories but I think um, you know St Stephen's not an issue Stephen is my friend mm -hmm. and when I hear Stephen's story about that about that incident uh, it just creates all sorts of emotions that reading the newspaper doesn't this is real. This is somebody I care about, and um, it it stokes what we would call in ethics the sympathetic imagination. And what would it be like to have that as a constant possibility or reality uh, in your life? And of course. I want to think Christianly about this. And again, this is one of the reasons I admire Cornel West. He's a confessing Christian. And he said, okay, what does the faith require of us in that? And um, I don't think it's that Christians don't care, but I don't think we've got yet gotten to the point, white Christians, I don't think it's that white Christians don't care. I just don't think we've gotten to the point of real sympathetic imagination yet. Sure. And uh, when we do, we'll care at another. We'll care at another level. Yeah. Stephen, you, you've told stories. Obviously, the one about the being pulled over. Um, you have a story about uh, your brother who was uh, attacked by a hate group. Right. Um, you, you in the video talk about um, your brother who was bullied and then uh, commit suicide. Um, or a friend, or a friend, right, excuse right, me, yeah, right. a friend who did that. Um, and people hear these stories, 
what is the response by most of the white people who hear these stories uh, for the first time? Right. I think if they're hearing them for the first time, many of them, most of them are moved by the stories. Um, and then a good number of them come up to me and say, well, what do we do? Like, I, I yeah. want to do something. I want to do something. This, this story, I can't believe these stories that you're sharing about your family or about your friends. And I keep hearing all these stories about what black Americans go through. But uh, what do I do? What can I do? And mm-hmm. so, I don't know. I love when that question is asked because um, I, I think there's there there ought to be this response where we ought to roll up our sleeves and try to do something to to demolish these systems and structures that continue to oppress people. But uh, I, I hope that the narratives, I hope that the stories will inspire people um, to uh, want to do something about about change or about doing change, yeah. affecting change. So I've, as I was listening to Coates, what I seemed to hear him saying to his son was that his son would always uh, be under oppression until white people stopped being dreamers and woke up. And I'm hearing him, and it sounds like he's saying that this isn't going to change until white people step up and address the issue. Now, I, I hear that, and my response in my head is, does this perpetuate the, the white hero syndrome, where it's mm. the white person is going to come in and fix the problem? Uh, how do you hold that, that tension? Yeah. Because obviously, yeah. you know, white people have some, some fixing to do. Um, <laughs> right. But we're not the hero of the story. Right. It's almost that... Um, I have a friend of mine, he, he has a hard time watching that movie with Sandra Bullock in it. I can't remember uh, the name of it. But that football... The bus one, where she's uh, on the bus and it won't slow down? No, no, no. The, the, uh, the, the, the uh, Blind Side. Blind Side. A Blind Side, yes, yeah. yes. I mean, there's a lot of oh, movies yeah. that are hard to watch <laughs> with Sandra Bullock. No, right, I love right. Sandy. <laughs> no, but The Blind Side, I, I have a friend of mine, a black friend of mine, where he hates that movie because of, yeah, you know, yeah, it seems like here's the white savior coming along. But, um, yeah, I, I, I get frustrated when people believe that, okay, I guess I, I have this calling to go and help black people and I'm going to be seen as this white hero. No, it, it shouldn't be like that. I, I think we ought to just recognize the fact, look, these are, this is my brother, this is my sister, and I need to do something to help them out. Not with this mentality or this idea that I want banners, I want parties to be thrown for me because I'm helping black people. No, it's like what uh, Coates is saying. It's the it's the right thing to do, when you think about what has been done to African Americans. It's it's an opportunity to make things right, to set things right, uh, not an opportunity to just sit up there and uh, stand up on a pedestal and say, "Look, I'm a I'm a good Christian. Look what I'm doing to help minorities. Look what I'm doing to help people of color." Yeah. And he just comes right out. And I love some of the interviews that that um, he's done, where he just says, "I, I just think we." need to call evil out and then do something to change it, mm-hmm. change the situation that we're in right now. So you think I should change my Twitter profile, which says husband, father, pastor, woke on there? Like I shouldn't say that to brag that I'm, 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 I'm helping people who are different from, I shouldn't do that. I, I, you know, I haven't read that book in the last few weeks, but part, part of my remembrance of that dreamer thing is, is it's a rift on the American dream which is built more on winners and losers than we're mm. than we're prone to admit. And uh, as long as I'm trying to win and somebody has to lose, um, then 
I'm invested in white privilege in a way that I don't want to readily admit. Yeah. And, you know, the old, I was born on third base and think I've hit a triple. I mean, there's <laughs> a lot of that um, where, um, you know, is it easier for me in a, in a world where I don't have to compete with anybody other than a few other white males? Yeah. Yeah, it's easier for me to win if they... Yeah. If there if there are fewer people in the race, and I think the the protection of that dream, you know, all, this gets tough, doesn't it? Because we're so invested in the American dream. Does the protection of that dream mean that I have to protect it against all others who try to who, who try to climb yeah. who, tr who try to climb up? And those are really hard questions about. Um, a competitive society, uh, um, and one where we don't all start at the same starting line. Some of us, you know, are pushed out of the highest, you know, branches of the tree, and those are sobering thoughts. And I I'm not offering any answers. I'm just ready to have the have the conversation. And yeah. say, okay, how do we how do and, we think about that? And the question has to go from you know, what do I want to what kind of society do I want to be a part of? Right. Right. Because you get two different answers. If it's just what I want, uh, I, I want to stay on third base. Or what kind of world is God trying to call into being through Jesus Christ? Uh, if you're, if you're, thank a you Christian. for trumping mine and, and adding the <laughs> God and Jesus thing. Well, okay, whatever. Well, I think you know. Again, I'm, I'm an enormous admirer of Coates, a Coates book, but I, I, I don't want to let Christians off the hook uh, because Coates happens to be a. A non-believer. I mean, there, there, mm -hmm. there's stuff that is compelling us because of our faith and our belief in the kind of world that God's trying to create that that should give us all the passion that He has. Oh, uh, yeah. Even though it's coming from a different different place. I I know He openly spoke about how He was not a religious person, uh, and I think maybe He even explained why. But I never felt like He was being uh, combative, and I never felt offended by anything he said about that. I know that there are some people who, um, they put up the defense of, well, I don't need to try to fix this problem. Um, you know, you know, you know, blacks aren't really shot more than whites. And then they go, the next move is always, well, look at black on black crime. And right. well, you know, obviously there's black on black crime, so let's not worry about anything else. And Coates has the line, I think the metaphor he uses is that's like complaining to someone who's, who's been shot and complained at them for bleeding. And it seemed like he was trying to say, you know, this is um, to remove this from the plight of the black body in America would be disingenuous. Do you remember any, anything along that line? Uh, yes, I do. I, I do remember more of him because he followed that up in an interview and he said that, um, I mean, when you think about black on black crime, you're exactly right. People love to bring that up. But then I love when he, in this interview, when he was talking about his book, he said, think about, let's go back to the history. Let's talk about Jim Crow laws, where we had legal segregation, legal separation of the races, and black people couldn't live with white people. And he said that when you think about what's going on in the culture today, it's because of what happened in the past. It's because of slavery. It's because of Jim Crow laws. And I think it... Um, especially that section of the book where he talks about the government intentionally segregating black people from white people and talking about redlining being the practice. 
and talking about um, people in America, politicians and business leaders doing whatever it took to keep black people, even black people who became successful, made a lot of money to keep them out of white neighborhoods. I mean, that was a practice in America. And it still goes on to this day. Um, there was an article I was reading the other day where they said that the Obama administration is trying to, at least before he gets out of office, this is one thing that he would love to address. But this whole idea of, of uh, residential segregation that goes on in America 2016. So I don't know. I, I, I love uh, those writings of um, Angela Davis where she says, you pin us, like you're putting us in prison, and then you're surprised at the results? When you pin black Americans and when you wall them in, when you keep them in prisons with, those, uh, with the neighborhoods that you've designated them to live in, what, what do you expect what's going to happen? Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. I think that's another conversation that we have to have. But I, I agree with what Randy said. I think it, at the end of the day, it's all about money. It's all about the American dream. And when people are very comfortable and when they have all their wealth, when they're living in their house, when they have their clothes and everything is comfortable for them, why would they want to change? And so that, that's why I get so agitated and aggravated with, with the American dream. Whose American dream is that? Because yeah. it's not for everyone. And uh, th- that's something I think Coates was trying to address and trying to say, this is what we have to do in America. We have to change it. We have to make things right for all people. No. One of the other objections seems to be, well, I didn't do any of that. That happened a long time ago. I'm not, I'm not participating in that. You know, I didn't uh, you know, cause people to go to different schools. I watched Remember the Titan, and I felt really moved by that. <laughs> I like that. Uh, strong side, left side. You know, I like that. And... <laughs> I'm not participatory in anything that happens. And so why don't we just move on, forget what happened? Can't we just, you know, not dwell in the past? Let's just get over and move forward. What's the flaw in that sort of thinking? Well, it's a flaw like, uh, you know, I'm a male. And uh, I know that there's certain advantages that um, I've had in life because I'm a male. And I remember just hearing stories of some of my sisters who have told me in terms of how they're treated because... Um, of their gender, I, I think I can't ignore their cries. I can't ignore what, what they're talking about. And I, I've got to, if I'm a conscious individual, I've got to do something to make things right. So in that regard, um, you know, I can't just in my mind say, well, they're just women complaining. But if I look at the facts and investigate and hear the stories and, and it's just one after the other where women are being oppressed because of their gender, I, I think... I can't, I shouldn't be able to sleep well at night. I ought to say to myself, okay, I got to do things right. If I know that my female counterparts are not being paid as the male counterparts, there's a problem here. And they're, and they're qualified. Uh, I, I think I ought to lift up a banner and do something to try to alleviate the, the no. pain that they go through. Let's, let's suppose that we're playing a softball game and we're extremely inexperienced at softball. And so we're trying to kind of invent the game as we go. Okay. So in uh, the first, uh, the top of the first inning, we decide, okay, we're going to have nine outs. And that turns out to be a really bad idea. One team scores 231 runs, and the, the inning goes on and on and on. And we decide, okay, that's, that's not going to work. We're going to go to three outs in inning. It's going to be the same for everybody. 
but the team that scored the 231 runs is going to keep the 231 runs. Um, but, but now we're all playing under the same rules, so it's mm. fair for everybody. Mm-hmm. And it is deeply disingenuous for me to say that I am in no way uh, a recipient of those 231 runs. And my, my parents grew up as part of the working poor. I'm, I'm not what you'd consider part of one of the privileged class. But you know, there's this whole history that's given me those 231 runs. And now I want to say, okay, we're, but hey, but we're all playing by the same rules. And if you can catch up, that's great. But <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm not going to do anything to, uh, to mitigate all those runs I started out with. That really doesn't make any sense, does it? Um, and I suppose you could make the argument, okay, but we're, we're all even now. But the evidence for that is not very good. Yeah. You know, the evidence for that is just not very good, I, I, I don't think. And so uh, I, don't, I haven't studied my ancestry. I don't know what my parents' parents did and all that. It looks like poverty as far back as I can see. Uh, but I also know that because of no act of my own, I grew up in a stable home. What kind of advantages to that does that does that give me? And uh, there's a recent book that's been written just kind of on the economics of mm-hmm. of um, slavery. I haven't I haven't read the book, but you know it's kind of going back to an old way of thinking. Is okay, moral issues aside, let's think about what the ongoing economic impact of this was, and that's fair to. I think that's fair to ask, and um, uh, you know, if I'm going to start that far ahead, and all I'm going to say is, you just run as hard as you can, and we'll see if you can <laughs> catch up. I, I, I just don't, I don't see how that's a, yeah. a viable moral stance. Yeah, mm. yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, gentlemen. This has been a good conversation. Uh, can you, you um, can you let uh, Stephen try to sell a book here? Oh yeah, you got your children's <laughs> book. Let me see those. You have see? it hidden over there, so I couldn't yeah, see it. Here, here it okay, is. Okay, I yes. saw this online. Let okay. me see a copy of this. Okay, so this is Theodore's Theodore Thumbs. That's right. You wrote it. Uh, that's right. And Morgan Davis, uh, who's a student here at ACU. Wait, you you asked a student to help with this? Well, uh, he was a student here, uh, and then he went I mean, I to was, Dallas I, I, I and got to, his master's degree, but I've, he did I've, the illustrations. I used to live in Dallas, and I have a oh, master's degree. I, um, yeah, but you can't draw. <laughs> oh, okay, that's it. That's it. That's it. <laughs> but yeah, and it's about bullying. That's a good story. About, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just saying that. Yeah. Can I Which read the first a, page? Yeah, go ahead. Yes. Once upon a time. In a town not too far away from yours. <laughs> Isn't that good? That's compelling. <laughs> That's really good. Where is this online? Yeah. Can we get this uh, online? It's online. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or go to the uh, publisher's website, Clear Fork Publishing. Okay, I think I need to get one of these for my daughters. Oh, you know, I'll, I'll sign one. Will you really? For, yes. Do, do I still have to buy it? No, no I'll, I'll do that for you. No, I'll go ahead. I'll, I'll sign one. You didn't say I'll give you one. You'll say I'll sign it once you buy it. No, no, no. I'll sign one for you. Okay, this I'll is uh, the second children's book that the Newsworthy with Noiseworthy podcast has ever promoted. Heather Hodges wrote one. We promoted that one. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. and this is the second one. Uh, Theodore Thumbs. And you know what? I'm going to give it a thumbs up. <laughs> and... Um, Look, look for the interview. Oh, yeah. But, uh, we'll link the interview if people want to hear more about that. Cool. And it's, um, oh, yeah. Your poetry that you read in there is uh, pretty powerful. 
Thanks. So well done. And on I that. absolutely love working with Randy on that uh, video series. And again, it, it's it's I love the optimistic. It builds up to an optimistic uh, message. Because when I think of optimism, I think Randy Harris. <laughs> <laughs> Hopeful. Hopeful. Yeah, right. <laughs> Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>